0: it out you can do that the the paper method instead of just looking at your phone so that's all we have today for announcements now let's open to matthew chapter 10 there are bibles located in the seats in front of you should be about every other seat if you didn't bring yours and you'd like to follow along with us uh if you want to pull open your bible and and it has an on button if you're a child of technology and and that's the way you roll now is the time to do that too We're going to be in Matthew chapter 10, and we've actually started this a couple of weeks ago as we are working our way now through what's known as the Mission Discourse. This is where Jesus is actually giving the disciples a layout of what the mission is going to look like. But it really began back in chapter 9 in verse 35, as Jesus, we're told, was preaching and teaching throughout all the area of the Galilee region, and He looked upon the people and He had compassion. He looked out there over the folks that were lost and and his heart broke for them. And so as he looked out, he encouraged his disciples to uh, take action. No, he actually encouraged them to first pray before they took action. So he encouraged them to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might actually raise up workers. And then the next scene we see in chapter 10 as we begin is uh, they were the answer to their own prayers as God does so often with us. He actually makes us the answer to what we've been praying about. And so for the disciples uh, that were called then by Jesus, who is at this time probably traveling uh, with a whole crew of disciples. Disciple just means learner. Out of those uh, learners, however many there were, he selected 12 to become apostles. And the word apostle simply means sent out ones and so he he takes from the learners 12 that would become apostles to be sent out and as he names the 12 apostles he then is going to go through and give them instructions for what the mission is going to look like this is what i love about our lord and savior he doesn't just send us out on mission with no instructions at all he gives us a series of instructions as we get ready to go out on mission and what we looked at last week was Verses 5-15, through 15, the call to mission. Uh, what is God up to, in other words, and how do I get involved? How, how is He going to call me into this place to go out into the world at large and be on mission for Him? And then this week, we're going to look at the consequences of the mission. We'll get into more of this later, but but the point is, as you go out on mission, it's not going to be all easy street. There's going to be complications. There's going to be roadblocks. There's going to be a big word called Persecution. What is that going to look like for, the, for these disciples that he's calling to be apostles? He loves them enough to tell them it's not going to be easy street the whole time. And then lastly, what we'll cover next week is the consideration to complete the mission. That yes, there is persecution. There are going to be struggles and trials along the way, but here's the deal, uh, he's worth it. And not to be afraid of man. Not to be afraid of what man might do, but instead be afraid of God. Have, have a healthy fear of the Lord. That's, that's this fear that we have that's a reverence and a respect, but knowing that He has what's in, in best in mind for each of us. That there's a prize out there that far outweighs any temporary troubles or trials that we might come into. So that's where we're going to be today in, in section uh, the second section, verses 16 through 26, as we look at persecution in particular, the, the consequences that will come about. And before we start, I want to just lay out there for you the difference between persecution and wrath. So I, I get a lot of questions now, especially as the world seems even more tumultuous than ever. Is this the end times? Are we at, are we at the end? And I always give the, the glib answer, well, we're closer to the end than we are at the beginning. People love that, by the way, when they really want to know, we were closer to the end than we were yesterday. <laughs> Thanks, preacher. All right, but but here's what I want to point out, is that there is a difference between persecution and wrath, which also in the Bible is called tribulation or the great tribulation. Uh, in Second Timothy, what, Timoth- what uh, Paul tells Timothy in a very encouraging way is... Uh, as you go as a follower of Christ, you will suffer persecution. So 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 10, he tells his young protege this, But you have carefully followed my doctrine and my teaching, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Aren't you glad you came this morning? All who choose to live in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Greek word in there for all uh, means all. And for will means will. And so that means for everyone that follows Jesus, you will suffer persecution. And with persecution, it's important to point out that persecution comes from man where wrath comes from God they're very drastically different and the basis behind the spirit behind persecution is actually uh, satanic satan wants to trip you up mess you up get in your head every step of the way to stop you from doing the mission that God has called you out to do he chooses to seek to kill and to destroy that's the heart that's behind persecution now, wrath is different because, uh, as I mentioned, it comes from God, but also important to understand that wrath, even in God's wrath, his hope, his desire, his heart is for redemption. That even in the worst wrath that you see poured out in the book of Revelation, that seven-year great tribulation period, what, what will also take place is the greatest revival that has ever uh, happened on the face of the earth. I believe that. Because in the midst of wrath... God wants people to turn. Ezekiel says that he takes no joy in the suffering of the wicked. That that even for the worst of people, God's heart, his desire, is for them to turn back to him. Now, also to step into this realm of wrath versus persecution, I want to point out where we as a church stand with our eschatology. That's a really big and scary word. What it really just means is a study of the end times. And where we fall into things is uh, called a pre-tribulation eschatology. That means that, that prior to the tribulation, it's our belief that the church will be raptured, will be taken up off into heaven and removed prior to this seven-year period that John writes so elaborately about in the book of Revelation. And so that's, that's where we come from, that we will suffer persecution. We will be persecuted by man on this earth but we will not suffer wrath. We will not take a part in any kind of wrath. And what uh, Paul also says to the church in uh, Thessalonica in First Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, he spells this out very clearly and very directly in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9. He says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's where we stand as a church as it relates to the rapture. Now, I've heard in church uh, my whole life this phrase, the word rapture is never in the New Testament. Anybody ever heard that? That's true. If someone brings that up to you, you can say, you know what, you're absolutely right. The word rapture does not appear in the New Testament. That's because it comes from the Latin word rapturo, and the New Testament was written in Greek, not in Latin. So there's lots of Latin words that don't appear in the New Testament because it was written in Greek. But what does appear 13 different times in the New Testament is the word harpazo, which means to be taken away or to be caught up quickly as if by force. That word is then translated to Latin for us, rapturo. That's where we get our word rapture. So you can nod your head with a big smile on your face the next time someone in church says the word rapture never appears. You're right, it doesn't. But harpazo appears 13 times in the New Testament. So there you go, that's your little nugget for today. But as we look through the Old Testament, and if you are following along with us in our uh, reading, our Bible Study Together plan, we were this last week in Genesis chapter 19, and this is an example. The Old Testament is full of types and examples that back up why we believe, what we believe, and we can really have confidence in what God's Word says because of these things. Genesis chapter 19 is a story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this section of Scripture, what we find is uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are getting ready to suffer the wrath of God. God's wrath is going to be poured out. And by the way, if you want to know what God's wrath looks like, I want to encourage you when we go to Israel in 2023 as a group, uh, go with me to the Dead Sea. We'll look off to the south of the Dead Sea, and what you'll see is uh, nothing. Absolutely squat. It is barren, Desert land full of salt and sand. That's what God's wrath looks like. Didn't go well for the folks of Sodom and Gomorrah. But prior to God's wrath being poured out on that city because of all the wickedness that had taken place, we have Lot, who is a believer. He's there in this unrighteous city. His soul is vexed, is what the Bible tells us he was, he was in a bad spot. He was there even though he didn't believe the way they believed. He didn't remove himself, and yet God loved him enough that he removed him. And in verse 22 of chapter 19, this is what the angels that were sent to get Lot and his family out of the city prior to God's wrath, they said this, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there they quickly, as if by force, removed Lot and his family. They raptured him away, and they could not do anything wrath-wise until they had removed righteous Lot. So that's part of the reason that we believe that the church will be taken away prior to the tribulation. So just a little bit of encouragement for you guys there today in an entire section that's going to be full of persecution. All right, now, persecution, what it looks like today worldwide, we... We have this blessing of living in a country where we aren't violently persecuted, right? But when you look across the globe, what you find is 100,000 Christians die annually martyred because of their faith. And in the last half century, the last 50 years, 35 million Christians have died because of their faith. And in 52 countries in this world, it is still illegal to have a Bible in your possession, so all that information, by the way, I didn't just make up. That's a thanks to the Voice of the Martyrs, wonderful website, wonderful group that supports martyrs all over the world for the Christian faith. Now, you bring it back down to us today. We aren't persecuted in a violent way, at least not yet, for our faith. So what does persecution look like for us? Well, I tell you, I'd submit to you that as you look at the world where we stand right now, um, you cannot say anything bad about just about any group. You can't even say any kind of hard truth to any group. It doesn't matter uh, race, religion, gender. You can't say squat about anybody without getting yourself in trouble except for Jesus, <laughs> except for the name of Jesus. You can talk about God even in a group. You Try this sometime. Just mention God in a group, and what you'll find is no one will really give you much pushback in our country they won't say a whole lot but just drop a little j-bomb in there and watch how people turn just say the name of jesus in a group and instantly people start to do this uncomfortable Oh, oh he said jesus why because we are about to be persecuted and there is power in the name of jesus you understand There is power in the name. When people hear it, they react. They respond in that way because it's powerful. That's the reality. And so as things change in our country, we will see more and more persecution. It may just be simply with words at this time, but but no doubt in our life we will suffer in this way. Let's begin then in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 10. Behold, I send you out as sheep amidst of wolves. Therefore... Be as wise as serpents and harmless as as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And so the way Jesus begins this section is he tells them, look, I'm going to send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, this is a little bit of a turn from what he talked about earlier in Matthew when he said, uh, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. That's where a, a wolf comes in to try to infiltrate your group, your church, the people that are uh, believers that are congregated together. Now, I've talked to you before that sheep have essentially no defense systems. I mean, we have nothing. We don't have awesome uh, fangs or claws. We, we've got nothing to defend ourselves except we have a good shepherd. But in this spot, the one thing we do have is we have each other. We can congregate together. And what Jesus said is there's going to be wolves that come into your group, but you've got numbers. So praise the Lord for that. But that's not how Jesus organizes this sentence. He says, behold, I send you out in the midst of wolves. (laughs) And so now he's calling us as sheep to go out into a big old wolf pack. That is a whole different deal. That gets to be terrifying. And secondly, how do we get in? We're sheep. He finishes by saying, therefore be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So how is it that we are to get into the wolves and into the wolf pack? We are to be wise. We are to be crafty. When we think of snakes, we think about wise and crafty creatures. I don't know about any of you, but uh, I have the belief that the only good snake Is a dead snake. That's how I feel about snakes. But if you've ever uh, come across a snake, what you know is they are crafty. They pop up in the uh, strangest places, in places you do not expect them. I found them out in the landscaping just about a year ago, hidden underneath a rock. And and the reaction, I made some kind of noise. It sounded like a little schoolgirl when I came across a a four-and-a-half-foot black snake in the landscaping. I'm pretty sure I peed a little bit like it was just that kind of I'm like oh uh, and 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 that's what it's like but but here's the deal with snakes they're crafty they're wise they know how to get in and out slither in and out of spots undetected out of trouble they also know how to get away when trouble uh, is around them and so a snake in this instance what Jesus is trying to encourage us to do is to be crafty and to be alert be aware of your circumstances and then secondly he says to be as harmless as doves, now, that's important because oftentimes uh, we want to be about as harmless as a snake and about as crafty as a dove. That's that's right. We're ready to bite anybody that gets in our way. I'm ready to snap at you, but that's not what Jesus is encouraging them to do. But to be crafty, to be alert, and to operate under the guise of the Holy Spirit. Let him direct. Let him speak. Let him uh, uh, you know open doors so that we can get in places and then be harmless. So if you're caught in a bad spot, if you're in a a tight place where you're being persecuted, you're then not called to to coil up and lash out, but called to be like our master, who was, uh, was silent in front of his accusers. That's what they're called to be in this place. Now then, verses 17 and 18, he goes on to tell them, Uh, who they are to be aware of and beware of, and who these wolves look like, he says uh, that you will be delivered up to the councils and scourged in their synagogues. So who is actually going to come up against them? But the church. The church is actually going to be the one that's going to call you up and scourge you and flog you in their synagogues. Now this is going to seem harsh, And I want to explain, this isn't the body of Christ we're talking about. This is the religious system that was put in place by man to control people. These are the people that want to come after and persecute anyone that threatens their power. And you look throughout church history, and it's one of these things that we cannot deny. That over and over again, one of the instigators of persecution against Christians is actually the church itself. And in Jesus' days, he's explaining this to them. Who are the people that are actually going to put him on trial? It's the Jewish leaders. The people within the Sanhedrin. They're the ones that are actually going to bring charges against Jesus to trump up charges to lie about him and bring him before. uh, Let's finish. You will be uh, brought before governors and kings for my sake and as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So the government working hand-in-hand hand with the church have been throughout history the biggest persecutors of the Christian uh, belief, right? our, our way of life. And this is exactly what happened for Jesus. The Jews trump up all these charges and then bring him before Pontius Pilate to be put on trial. Now then, uh, he does mention something interesting that as this happens, you are to be uh, persecuted. You're to be called forth for my sake i want to point that out very clearly it's not just for our own sake that we're to suffer it's not for our own beliefs our own self-righteousness but for his righteousness this is what we're called to suffer for and and oftentimes uh, we mistake uh, righteousness for weirdness there are lots of people that get persecuted because they are stinking weird and they're, they're out there uh, street preaching lots of times. I've told you guys before that I, I went to the Indianapolis 500 uh, for 30 straight years as a kid. Little bitty guy with my dad and my grandpa. We would go every year to the Indy 500. And then my brother came along and he ruined it because it was the four of us. <clears throat> and so year after year we'd go and right there along Georgetown Avenue as you're walking into the race and with all kinds of debauchery and drunkenness, everything's taking place. But as you walk in, there were always these street preachers. And these guys had the signs, and they had a megaphone, and it was always, fornicators, drunks, you're all going to hell! And they were preaching. I'm thinking, wow, how bold they were for their faith. And then next thing you know, there's beer bottles. I saw a lady spit in a guy's face. I mean, right up in his grill. And then later I come to realize they weren't being persecuted because they were righteous but because they were annoying like it was just it was just downright odd that they were being persecuted and to go further into this never one time did I see anyone come to repentance not once I didn't see one person on their knees saying God forgive me instead I just saw persecution not for his sake but for their own sake and in first Peter chapter 4 he makes it very clear to us there, uh, I won't go there for the sake of time, but he makes it very clear that our motivation needs to not be self-motivated, and in fact, he uses the word busybodies. Don't just go around in everybody's business as busybodies wanting to get a reaction out of people, but instead, do it for Christ's sake. Now then, continuing in verse 19, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And then verse 21, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and a child will rise up against his parents and cause them to be put to death. Now the first question is, is when I'm... In the midst of persecution, how will I act? What in the world will I say when people come against me? And what Jesus is saying is you need Holy Spirit composure. That in the midst of this trial, this tribulation, this thing that's being brought against you, this persecution, the Holy Spirit will intervene for you and he will speak on your behalf. Now, does this mean that we don't ever have to read or study our Bible? That's the next question. And I have I have heard pastors who've used this phrase right here to go, "You know, I just don't even have to study. I just get up there and let the Holy Spirit speak through me. I just let it just let it flow all out from the Spirit." And I have to tell you, after listening to some of those sermons, they are awful. I mean, <laughs> nearly unbearable. But it's like get something sharp out and let me jab it through my eye to end this thing. Because it's so bad. The reality is we need to study. Studies are important. I mean, look, folks, I studied for hours and this isn't all that good. That's what some of you are thinking. Like, you actually studied. Imagine if I didn't study how bad this could be. The, the point is that, that we are to have a base. We're to have knowledge. And if we do not read and we do not study, there will be no basis for knowledge there's nothing there for the holy spirit to actually grab a hold of this is why in matthew 10 8 where we were last week he says freely you've been given freely now give but you can't give what you have not first been given you have to receive it you have to take it in before you can give it back out and it's in these spots where we've taken it in that he will come through in an amazing way and it's not always with scripture by the way there's lots of times the Holy Spirit will speak in and through you, and it's not even scriptural. Uh, one of my favorite guys that I like to listen to, uh, I was uh, listening to a message he was given, and he was talking about doing a uh, a, a, a marriage counseling session. And he was a young pastor, and in his twenties, he was newly married. And yet, uh, what they always do with young pastors is they throw you in counseling. Most of the time, it's because uh, pastors don't like to do it, so they give them to their assistant. So he's sitting here in this counseling session, and this couple is just going at one another. And, and the, the lady is telling the husband, you never pick up your underwear. For all these years, I've been just asking you, telling you to pick your underwear up off the floor. Why don't you do this? And he's yelling back at her, I took you to Paris twice this last year. Two times I took you to Paris. And, and, and the, the preacher was sitting there, and, and the Lord gave him this to say, he pointed at the man and he said, you're trying to fix with Paris what you broke with your underwear. That was the word the Lord gave him. You can't fix with Paris what you broke with your underwear. And it hit the guy right between the eyes because for the first time, what he realized is, she never once asked me to go to Paris. She'd asked me to have enough respect, to love me enough to pick up your stinking underwear off the floor. That's what she was asking for the whole time. He wasn't hearing the words until he took what the Holy Spirit gave him in a tense moment and said, look, you're trying to fix this thing with the wrong thing. And that's the kind of Holy Spirit composure that he will give to us when we're in those moments. Now then, in verse 21, we looked at was brother will deliver up brother to death and father his child and child will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. The reality is, when you fully surrender, when you completely give yourself over to Jesus, to the transformative power, He will create in you a new creation. You will, be a, you will look the same on the outside, but you will be different on the inside. He will regenerate you, and it will not always be well-received. And it will oftentimes not be well-received by the people that are supposed to love you the most. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Because as you are regenerated, uh, the old man has actually died. He has died. And to them, it just smells like death. (laughs) It smells like a dead person, rotting and decaying. The things you used to do, you don't do with them any longer. The ways you used to speak, the things we used to laugh about all of a sudden aren't funny. And it just seems like their son, their brother, their daughter, their cousin died. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, is that to others, it is the aroma of life. The fragrance of life. And to those people, you smell like something completely different, and they'll begin to ask, why are you different? What has changed? What's taken place in your life? I want some of that. Now... In families, this will really play out whenever you're being called on mission for Jesus. And oftentimes it, it, it plays out for those that are called to go overseas. You'll even see Christian families who will have a, a husband and wife called to go overseas to serve and to, to help people, and the least of these. And, and they may get some blowback from their parents like this um, How could you do this to your kids? How could you take them away and take them to Africa? What they're really saying is Jesus can't protect your children in Africa or in Asia or in you fill in the blank. There's this feeling, this belief that there's no way that Jesus could care for them in this spot. Now, I would encourage you not to take this book and whack them over the head with it, but instead to give them grace. Give them grace in those spots. They're, they're working through things too. They're, they're adjusting to the new you. And the reality of all this is that that the harder we try to hold on to this life, and as we're dealing with a global pandemic, we get it. The harder we try to hold on, the truth is, it's vapor. Solomon would call it a hevel in Hebrew. That's why in Ecclesiastes, the word is vanity. Over and over again, vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. It's It's the Hebrew word meaning vapor. It's smoke. You literally cannot hold on to it because it's going to evaporate. Now then, continuing on, uh, verse 22, and you will be hated by all. This is encouraging. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another one, for assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so the message here is that as you're hated, for my name's sake, again, that's important to point out, as you're hated on my behalf, uh, endure. And this is really the story of the Christian life. Do you understand? It's one of endurance. That for many, uh, we could relate it back to the parable of the sower. right? The parable of the sower, there's the seed It's the same seed, by the way, that gets thrown out. The seed is the Word of God. It goes out, and in some ground it's rocky. Others fall by the wayside and get trampled underfoot. And for others, they begin to sprout up and they're choked out by the thorns and thistles. Jesus tells us that's the cares of this world. And still for others, they settle in and they germinate. And and, and remember when we talked about sowing and reaping, it doesn't pop up right away, but it takes place over time. And then the increase begins to happen, and it's a matter of endurance. As that seed settles in, it's a part of this endurance that Jesus is talking about. Now then, one of my favorite pastors, C.H. Spurgeon, if you ever had a chance to read him, I'd encourage you to. But what he would say in realm of this is that if every man who had been saved would continue to follow Christ, who would be damned? For every man has had at least one spiritual spasm in his life. What he's specifically referring to is this idea, uh, indoctrinally, I might step on some toes here, but this idea of once saved, always saved, this idea that that, uh, if I said a prayer at church camp when I was 10, I can live like hell for the next 50 years and still be okay because of one prayer I shot out there. I just want to point out that I believe in the security of the believer. that a a prayer does mean that something's happened inside, but I also believe that as a believer, if you really mean it, if you really meant it, if you were truly saved and repentant, then there would be uh, an endurance that would take place. There would be fruit in your life. There would be something that would point back to that yes, it wasn't just about a prayer when I was 12 around a campfire. That's what Spurgeon's talking about is an emotional, a spiritual spasm that's like the dead body given one last twitch, right? That, that for every person that's had a twitch, if those people would have followed Christ, then no one would be damned. And yet they, they do not. They fall off by the wayside. But the message here, the story of the Christian life is one of enduring. And, and by enduring, I want to point out too, it doesn't mean that every person that endures is getting up in front of a church and speaking every Sunday. That endurance oftentimes uh, looks like, well, it looks like Jacob, who, when he wrestled with God all night long, and he wrestled, and he wrestled, anybody ever wrestled with God, wrestled all night? What happens is Jacob gets a dislocated hip, and yet what God does is bless him. In fact, Jacob held on so tight, he cried out, Bless me, bless me, please just bless me before you go. And God blessed him. He gave him a new name. Change his name to Israel. No longer shall you be called Jacob, which means heel catcher, but your name shall be Yisrael, which means governed by God. And yet, as Jacob woke up, he still had a limp. <laughs> For the rest of his life, he had a limp that he carried around, a reminder of his endurance with God. And I think a lot of times, that's us in the Christian life. We're all limping. We're limping along. Some of us got an arm hanging down, a leg dragging behind us, and yet that's not the point. The point is endure. Get to the finish line. Endure. Keep going. Keep going because the prize is in the call. Right? We're called to be followers of Jesus. It's unbelievable that we're called. Just continue to endure. Now then, uh, secondly, he points out in verse 23 that when you're in the city and they're persecuting you, flee. That we are not called to rush into martyrdom. That God very much values our life. We're, we are not called to stand out in the middle of Lincoln Avenue and preach as cars and traffic whiz by. We're not called to go stand up on the top of Carmen Hall um, in front of everybody and jump for Jesus. That's not what we're called to do. He values our life. He, he treasures it. And so we are not supposed to tempt death in this spot. But also operating with a confidence to know this, that Paul tells the Philippian church, look, if I, if I live, it's Christ. To live is Christ. What he's meaning by that is, as I live and I get to go through interacting, I'm taking the kingdom of heaven with me everywhere I go. I get to interact with people and, and, it's, and it's to see folks come to know Jesus if you've ever gotten the the opportunity to lead someone to Christ, you know what a thrilling experience that is to welcome a brother or sister into the kingdom. It's beautiful. And yet Paul also knew to die is gain. Like when I sign off, when I'm done with this whole deal, I'm going to gain so much. It's incomprehensible. And so it gives us as Christians this, this wonderful confidence to walk through life, to know I live, I get to share Jesus with others. But boy, if He takes me home... Man, it's going to be so much better. I can't wait for that day. Now then, the end of this verse, verse 23, for you Bible students, you're going to go, what in the world does he mean by this? For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now this is one of those where I will tell you as a pastor, uh, I don't know. (laughs) How do you like that answer? I don't know what he means exactly. I believe that in Scripture... There are things that God doesn't give us enough information to be able to fully understand. And so I take that, and I put it in my file. Got a filing cabinet in there. I file that away, not like the X-Files with David Duchovny, but a different kind of file system. I file that thing away until more information appears. I also believe that in prophecy, it's more like a mountain range as opposed to just a single mountain peak. That when Jesus is prophesying at this point, he's talking about a mountain range There's mountains that are more near to you and mountains that are further away from you. And so the near fulfillment very possibly could be that just about 30 years after the death of Jesus in 70 AD, the Romans would come through and completely wipe out all of Israel. They decimated everything, trees, plants, the temple, everything. They were tired of the Jews having uprisings. They wiped it all out. And so we see a very near fulfillment. The gospel hadn't gone to every village. And the Son of Man came. That's a a, a term of judgment taking place. And yet, here's Israel now repopulated. So the fulfillment in a further sense is when He comes finally, lastly, for a second time. And so we see possibly at the end of verse 23 both a near and a far fulfillment of the coming of the Son of Man. Now then, continue on. Verse 24 through 26. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. And it is enough for a disciple that he may be like his teacher and a servant like his master. And if they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be revealed known and so jesus is telling them look if uh, i am persecuted i'm your master here's here's a little bit of uplifting information to wrap up with you're going to also be persecuted but but the thing is um we have to ask ourselves if we're not persecuted at all is that possibly because we're not being very much like jesus at all is it possible if you see zero persecution, no one ever speaks against what you had to say or share, is it possible that you are not really being like him with the people you interact with on a daily basis? And, and when you think about the name of Jesus, we got to sing about the wonderful name of Jesus, and it is wonderful uh, that often in Scripture he is... The Lord Jesus Christ. You do understand, I hope, that's not his first, middle, and last name. He's not Lord, middle name Jesus, last name Christ. But that his name, uh, Jesus, just simply means Jehovah is salvation. And we love that name, right? Who doesn't love a Savior? I I love anybody that comes and saves me from my sins. I love that name. He gave freely so that I can have the gift of eternal life. That's awesome. I love Jesus. I also love the name of Christ. The name simply means the anointed one. So he is Jesus, our salvation. He is the anointed one. Kings in that day were anointed. That's what it really means. He is the anointed one, the king of kings. And if he's my king, he's also going to make my enemies my footstool. I'm really excited about my enemies being my footstool, by the way. I get fired up about that. So we love Jesus. We love the Christ. And yet, I started it off by saying he is... Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord part uh, in Hebrew is Adonai, Master. That one I got a little bit of a struggle with, right? That's the one that makes us tense up because oftentimes we want him as our Savior. We love him being our king, but we really struggle with him being our master. That means now I have to start listening to everything he says, everything he directs, I put myself beneath uh, him and his word. And what John says in John chapter 15, uh, verse 20. I'll get there eventually. John 15, verse 20. This is Jesus uh, teaching his disciples. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He's referring to the section we're in now. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So as you make yourself a servant, truly allowing him to be your master, the reality is you are going to be persecuted as he was persecuted. Now then they go on to tell him, Uh, Jesus goes on to say, if they call uh, me Beelzebub, this is a a name of a Philistine god. He was actually the Lord of the flies is who Beelzebub was. And we all know uh, that what flies like to congregate around, right? So the Jews would throw that out there that you're Beelzebub because what they were really saying is you are Lord of the dung. right? That is a beautiful picture. And I think about this and here's their long-awaited Savior, the Messiah, the, the, the Savior of the world, and now they're calling him the Lord of the Dung. That's how they referred to the God that created the universe. You are the Lord of the flies. And I think about Romans chapter one. I'd encourage you when you when you wonder about where we're at as a society, just spend a little time reading the first chapter of Romans. It lays it out there pretty clear. But what we're told at the end of that chapter is that good will become bad and bad will be called good and you see that very much in, in what jesus is saying is the lord of the universe sent to save is now called the lord of the dumb evil is what paul's writing about there in romans 1 is not punished but instead it's actually encouraged and take a look around open your eyes just a little bit and what you'll find is all around evil is actually not discouraged it is Encouraged. Bad is being called good left and right all over the place, and no one is willing to actually set a line and say, This is good, this is bad. We're afraid to do that. And that's precisely what Paul was trying to communicate there to the Romans. And so now, after an entire uh, section about persecution, welcome to Woodlawn Chapel. Uh, What does this mean for you and I? How does this play out in our lives? Well, What are some practical points I can take away, what what ways can I take this message on persecution and apply it to my life, I want to encourage you with these four things. First of all, pray in a way that you might see persecution. Now that seems crazy, but what we just talked about is that the more we are like him, the more we will get what he got. And so as we pray, Lord, let me see some persecution in my life, that actually means you are taking steps forward in your Christian life. And it, it's not always going to be getting punched in the face for Jesus, by the way. It's going to be a coworker that doesn't agree with your stand on something. It's going to be a boss that's going to ask you to back down when he catches you praying in the office. It's going to be a friendly relationship where they go, you know, could I get a little less Jesus out of you? Like That's the way persecution is going to play out uh, in our lives. So pray in a way that you might see some persecution. And then as we do, uh, reflect him and his peacefulness. So as you get the blowback from persecution, uh, don't act like uh, uh, everybody I was ever raised with in Clark County. Uh, you punch me in the face, I'm going to punch you twice as hard. That's the way we like to react if you came from Clark County to persecution. But instead, react in peacefulness to just simply smile and love on them because what they need most, more than anything in that spot, is they need grace out of us. Secondly, pray more than you say. That again, to go back to the previous reference, so often we want to defend ourselves, I want to encourage you that as you get persecuted, pray for them. Lift them up because stuff is happening inside. You understand that when people persecute you, it's because you have actually condemned them. Not intentionally, unintentionally most of the time, but what they see in you is what they wish they would see in their own life, and so they lash out. Pray for them because oftentimes what's actually happening is God's doing a work in them. Things are happening. They're they're moving around, and so pray for them and remember and be confident in the fact that he is still the king of kings. Nothing is ever going to change that, you see. Nothing is going to take him off of his throne. And so while we get all upset on who's this president or that president or this senator or that senator, the reality is Jesus is the king. Nothing can change that. He is going to continue to be the king yesterday, today, and forever is what we're told in Hebrews. Thirdly, then, pray that you might endure persecution, fearing the Lord, not man. What Solomon actually writes in Proverbs is that with the approval of man comes a snare. What he means by that is you can never actually get it. No matter how hard you try, you will never fully and completely get man's approval. And so when we bring that into the category of fear, we are called to fear the Lord. And in doing so, you'll have no fear of man. It will not matter what they say, what they think, how they act, because uh, you fear God. And fearing man, by the way, is exhausting. If you've ever tried to work to gain man's approval, it will wear your butt out. I'm telling you from personal experience, you cannot make them approve of you enough. And, and then one of my favorite lines in all the Old Testament, by the way, when you're in the midst of persecution is this, it came to pass. It's important to remember That throughout our lives as we are getting persecuted in this spot or that spot is that it always comes to pass. It's always simply temporary. It's never eternal. Now, fourthly and finally, when we wonder what are practical points that we can take home for persecution, I would encourage you to pray for those who are heavily persecuted. There are friends, there are brothers and sisters you have in Christ that you have never met, which, by the way, you have probably as much or more in common with those people living on the other side of the world to believe in Jesus than you do that uncle or cousin that does not. That's something you need to let that sink in just a little bit. You have more in common with a believer in Africa than you probably do some of your own family that does not believe. Pray for them. They are under heavy persecution. They are dying daily. And as you pray for them, I want to encourage you to consider Just for once in your life, consider going somewhere overseas and visiting them. Spending some time with them. In 2022, we are going to open up a mission trip to go to Zambia. I get nothing, by the way, from a sales pitch on this. I'm going to go, though, and I'm going to go there like I did two years ago, and I'm going to speak to pastors who are called into a mission field of people that I could never reach And for those of you that would decide to go, you would get the opportunity to go and spend an entire week with kids doing a VBS that have most likely never seen a white person. Never. And you know what they want more than anything? They want you to pray for them. Those kids that are out there on the board, the information board, out of the six that we support, I got the chance to meet four of them, to lay my hands on them, and to pray over them. And after they were done being freaked out from some white guy whose skin looks different touching them, they thought that somehow this was going to rub off on them. Like, I don't know what's going on with you, bro, but it's going to rub off on me. After they got done being weirded out, they loved to just be prayed for. The next day, they wanted to come up and tap me on the shoulder and have me pray for them again. And so often we can look at what it costs to go overseas and actually spend time with these folks and we get caught in our head and go, you know, it'd be better. It's thousands of dollars to go over there. I should just send them money. They could do so much more with my money than they could with me being there. And I'm here to tell you, if you ask them to their face, which they would rather have, they'd rather have you. They would rather have you there praying for them because they are being heavily persecuted in every village that they leave and go back to They are being persecuted by witch doctors that rule over that whole village and you take a step of faith in that spot, you are an outcast. You are no longer a part of their community. That's what they're under and what they need more than anything is prayer. They need us to stand behind them. And so I just want to ask you to consider. You've got 18 months to think about it, to pray about it. Consider what that might look like for you to go just one time and serve in that way. And so, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that as we cover a difficult uh, section of Scripture um, and we think about persecution, Lord, I want to actually thank you for the honor to be persecuted as you are persecuted, for being worthy enough to even have a little bit of pushback from people. Lord, thank you for that. It's an odd thing to be thankful for, and yet to be more like you, to be more like my King, it's our huge blessing. And so, Father, thank you so much. Thank you for the people that have come out today. Lord, you're moving on people's hearts. You're doing things in this community that surrounds Woodlawn Chapel. Lord, there is so much need around here. Lord, please be with these communities. Please bless them, Lord. Bring people out of their homes to a place where they can have hope. For the first time in a long time maybe the first time ever they can have some hope lord help us to be a light as we stand in the face of persecution in the face of doubt a light that there is something better out there than what they're facing so lord we lift all this up to you we pray that your word would go forth and not return void jesus name amen let's
1: all stand for a closing song In the eye of the storm, you remain in control In the middle of the war, you guard my soul You alone are the anchor when my sails are torn Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm When the solid ground is falling out from underneath my feet Between the black skies and my red eyes I can barely see When I realize I've been sold out By my friends and my family I can feel the rain remind of me In the eye of the storm You remain in control In the middle of the war You guard my soul you alone are the anchor When the sails are torn Your love surrounds me In the eye of the storm When my hopes and dreams Are far from me And I'm running out of faith I see the future I picture Slowly fade away When the tears of pain And heartache pouring down my face I find my peace in Jesus' name In the eye of the storm You remain in control In the middle of the war You guard my soul You alone are the anchor My sails are torn Your love surrounds me Your love surrounds me in the eye of the storm.
0: And the church says, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming out. Just a quick reminder in case you missed it in the announcements. A couple weeks we got our Super Bowl party, so looking forward to hanging out with you during that. If you need prayer for any reason at all, I'll be hanging around, so please find me. Happy to pray for you. And please don't forget your children. Please take them. We don't need any more kids. No, i kidding. God bless you guys. Thank you. Thank yeah.